Yo, what's the deal, baby? This your boy, Uncle Luke, formerly of the Two Live Crew. You are listening to Pass It Down with Mike Silver and Natalie Silver. Natalie is the most beautiful young lady in this deal right here. Mike doesn't look so good, even though they're dad and daughter. It's the big show, baby. Well, a landmark moment has occurred at the Pass It Down podcast. We've teased it. We have flirted with the idea. We have given our guests some time to prepare. Yeah, prepare and and kind of take it all in. But somebody that when we first launched the podcast, we targeted immediately is my friend Amy Trask. Amy, I'm going to talk about you in a second, but hi. Well, thank you for saying hi and hi. <laughs> and I want you guys to know um, really from the bottom, the depths of my heart, how delighted I am to do this with you and how much I appreciate the opportunity too. And we can get into why I'm so mushy about this if you wish, but thank you for having me. I would like to get into that. I'm, first, I'm just going to tell people who may not know. So Amy uh, was the chief executive of the Oakland Raiders uh, and maybe the LA Raiders, I, I got to get the dates right, but she was a, a longtime Raiders executive and, um, you know, one of the most significant people in the NFL at, during, lining up with the time that, that I covered it, which normally you would think, oh, that's so cool because Mike and Amy got to have, you know, nothing but pleasant interactions, but it <laughs> was an organization that I sometimes, you know, quarreled with. So um, we'll, get, we'll in, get into that. We'll get into all that. But anyway, you know, a, a super, super accomplished football person. And um, since leaving the Raiders has gone on to huge things, um, including great work at CBS. Uh, we both started doing television primarily around the same time in 2013. Um, she's on that other pregame show and we need to talk. She is uh, the CEO, I believe, of the Big Three, which we will get into, a great, great basketball league and many, many other things. But um, I could brag about you all night, Amy. Well, you are very, very kind. And um, I don't know if you heard me uh, sort of snort laugh when you referenced our uh, relationship while you were covering the team and I was with the team. But I will say that you and I were very much like Ralph and Sam in that <laughs> Looney Tunes cartoon where we would check in in the morning, go about our battles. And at the end of the day, have a nice night, have a nice night. Good morning, Ralph. Good morning, Sam. Good night, Ralph. Good night, Sam. And we we did a good job um, representing our respective interests, yet maintaining civility. That's funny, Amy. I'm reading your book right now in preparation for this podcast, but also just general fangirling. And you use that same reference. Um, was it about Al Davis? <laughs> Do you have that? The, the, the Ralph and Sam reference? Yeah. Um, you know, Al and I did disagree more than we agreed with one another <laughs> over the course of my career. The biggest misconception about him is that you couldn't disagree with him or that he wouldn't tolerate disagreement or tolerate those who disagreed with him. Cause if that were the case, I'd have been fired roughly two weeks into my job. So, <laughs> you know, I think ours was a, a, a different relationship than that, but very similar in the fact that we could disagree vehemently, loudly, strongly, and yet still work together. So maybe it is Ralph and Sam like, you're right. It might have been the league. I don't know. By far the best and longest conversation I ever had with Mr. Davis by far was when he uh, agreed to be interviewed by me for the story I did on Amy for Sports Illustrated, which I will save that story for later in the podcast. But 
Um, because of Amy, I actually got to have one long, good conversation. Didn't you him. say like, oh, Mr. Davis, thank you for talking to me. What did he say? So Amy, so I, first of all, I had to talk Amy into doing a story. In I know, I want to get into with the me. whole history. And it was, a, it was a long ordeal. But once once Amy trusted me to do that and, and you know, we had some interviews and I talked to a lot of people. Well, of course, I put in a request to talk to, to Mr. Davis, but he hated me like he had banned me from the facility many times and I had not been shy about, you know, criticizing him. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a relationship where he would talk to me. And then, uh, Amy, one day I just got a call from Fudgy and uh, from Al's secretary and just said, uh, Hey, what are you doing tomorrow at like 11 Pacific? And I was like, um, I'm going to be in Seattle doing this like charity radio thing. She's like, okay, well, you might get a call. And sure enough, I'm walking along those docks, you know, down by Puget Sound uh, in Seattle. And he calls and, and I, he says, hello, Michael, this is Al Davis. And I go, Hi, Mr. Davis. Thank you for talking to me. And he goes, oh, I'm not talking to you. I'm just doing something for Amy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that with me. And you did. Wow. And I, I do want to tell you one thing, Mike, because you pointed out and you're, of course, absolutely right that Al had issues. I believe he banned you for a while. And and, um, I, you know, the one thing and I say this sincerely and perhaps more for Natalie than for you, because you are you. And then this is something I want. In, in other words, you dealt with that. You handled that. It, it, you were a professional about it. But I want Natalie to know this about you. Um, it's a little bit mushy. But the only reason Al felt as strongly about you as he did was his respect for your work. And the reason I note that is this. There were a lot of people that wrote things and reported things that bothered him. But if he considered one of those people to be irrelevant, not intellectually astute, not good at what they did, he didn't care. The people that he took issue with and banned and such things were people for whom he had respect for what they did. He didn't like it. He disagreed with it. He couldn't stand what you wrote. But if he thought you were insignificant or unimportant or not worthy of his disdain, he wouldn't have wasted on you. I hope it makes sense the way I'm explaining that. But if it was, you know, someone I'll use a Latin phrase, de minimis non curat al. That's not the Latin phrase. It's de minimis curat non curat rex. But it means he wouldn't have, you know, with triviality, with minimality, minim, minimalization, minimality. I don't even think that's a word. He wouldn't have concerned himself. But if he had respect for the intellect and acumen of the person who was writing the things he didn't like, yeah, he was going to be tough on that. Hope that made sense. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Well, I'm going to say this. So Natalie, uh, you know, Al Davis is a legend, right? He's one of yeah. the most significant people in, in the history of the sport and, and was a guy before I was doing this for a living as a kid that I, I admired of, of course, because the Raiders were cool. The seventies Raiders that I grew up watching, they weren't just um, a great team, but they had, um, you know, it was a lot of guys who'd gotten second chances or lived on the edge or were just a little bit weird and, and, you know, edgy. And he had this collection of people and they were allowed to be themselves and they played like it. They had a fan base that reflected it and appreciated it in Oakland. And, 
you know, and it also it was not lost on me that, you know, as time went on, he he hired the first Hispanic American coach in the NFL, Tom Flores, hopefully a future Hall of Famer very soon. Um, he hired ultimately the first African-American head coach in the modern era in Art Shell twice. And then he hired Amy and empowered her in a way that no non-family member, to my knowledge, in the NFL has ever really, you know, been empowered. And, and I know part of it is that he was a guy who understood the ramifications of that because he's, you know, his values were right on that. And part of it is he probably thought, I don't care. I'm getting value. These people are good and nobody else has the the balls to see it that way. So I like, I was like pro Al, you know, in my football development. And then I started covering the league. I met him a couple of times and, you know, he's a lot. He was, he didn't really want to make small talk with some young idiot. And finally I got to sports illustrated and I started hearing a lot of things about the state of the Raiders. I got there in like late 94 and just hearing from people I knew who, you know, had played for him and coached for him and had gone there. And I, I thought there were, you know, a lot of criticism about what was going on with the, the team at that point. And so I kind of tried to go do a story for SI. I went to, I, I called Mike Taylor, the PR director and said, Hey, I want to come to training camp and I want to try to talk to so-and-so and so-and-so and Mr. Davis, because I've talked to Mike Shanahan, Art Shell, and all these other people who, you know, George Anderson, people who, would have been critical of Al at that time. And I'm thinking, well, Al will charm me and tell me football stories and give his side and I'll write a balanced story. Uh, I was banned (laughs) before before I wrote the story months before I was already banned. Well, you know, Mike, um, it's interesting. You point out what initially attracted you to the Raiders or caught your attention because that is the same. um, That's what that captured me as well. I loved football from the time I was in junior high school and ultimately at Cal, the Raiders were down the road, really and truly down that freeway. And and just to, just to stop you, that's the same junior high school. I believe that I went to that's Paul Revere, right? That is the same junior high. I wonder if you guys had the same teachers, if you terrorized the same teachers. Well, I don't know if we had the same ones, but I know I terrified a lot and, and that's in part what, you know, attracted me to the Raiders was exactly what you just identified, <laughs> giving people, giving people second chances, hiring people that others wouldn't hire, not caring if someone was different or labeled a behavior problem. I was labeled a behavior problem in kindergarten. And that <laughs> label stuck with me all the way through our shared high school, Mike. Some people would say that the label is still appropriate, but you know, you'd watch Raider games on television and you'd see all these other teams when they arrived at the game on game day, they're getting off the team bus in suits and ties. And then you'd see the Raiders and they're just stumbling out of the bus in like looking like the cat just dragged him in. And I love that. And I love that he would give people second and third and fourth chances. I'd been given second chances and third chances and fourth chances. So that resonated with me as well. Dad, were you ever labeled a behavior problem? Oh yeah. Pally high. Oh yeah. Well, definitely at, at Paul Revere and Pally high. Amy, I would do this thing where, you know, we had grades for work habits and cooperation, E, S, or U. And if you had- I got U's. I got U's. Yeah, if you had U's, you were (laughs) ineligible for all the honor societies and all that. So I would try to 
kiss up to the teachers the, the last week of the real report card term at, you know, after they hated me, hated me, hated me. And then I just try to kiss their ass at the end to sneak in with the S minus. And I swear there were teachers who gave me ASS just so they could call me an ass on the report card. <laughs> That's hilarious. I, I, I never, I never got E's. I never got no. E's. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would get U's and I would get S's. And that was just, I mean, and I grew up in a family where my older brother and sister, you know, they were the AEE students, you know, A and then excellent, excellent. And I'm rolling in with U's and S's. And um, my sixth grade teacher told my mom within earshot of me that I know your older kids are very smart, but, you know, this one, you should not have the same goals for her. This one's not going to eat. He told my mom in my earshot, I would never get into college. So you know, let's, let's just, you know, that, and that's why I just, I got second chances and third chances. And that really resonated with me about Al and the Raiders. And, um, you know, you pointed out, he hired Tom, he hired me. Um, when I was there, I was thrilled that he hired art. And as you said, twice, um, and, you know, for those, there'll be people listening to your podcast that love the Raiders, loved Al. There'll be people that hated the Ra- hate the Raiders and, and hated Al. But if we're intellectually honest, we can all agree that he did something decades and decades and decades before others. Um, and some people still aren't doing it. And, <laughs> you know, when he hired me, the concept of women in the NFL, women in football, that wasn't even a topic. It wasn't a topic of conversation. And you're right. He didn't care about race, gender, ethnicity, or any other individuality, which has no bearing on whether someone can do a job. Did did you care? Like, did it impact how you felt about yourself in the workplace? That's a great question. No, you know what, Natalie, in all the podcasts and interviews I've done ever, no one has ever asked me that. Wow. Um, (laughs) I I don't think it did. I just, I just... I got the job and, and I did my job and I didn't give that thought. That's a heck of a question. Um, so when I did the SI story on Amy, it included, there were so many, there were many descriptions of Amy. And I know even though we had a great experience doing the article that I talked to her to doing the immediate, her immediate reaction to it, I don't think was like overjoyed because some people said some, you know, pretty strong things, you know, she had, I read it. It was nice. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I thought it was cool, but you know, I, and so, but one of the things that somebody called her in that article was the princess of darkness, mm-hmm. but lo and behold, it stuck. And uh, it has become, you know, a term of great endearment to, to most to use it. Right. Amy. I mean, that's, it's, it is. You are right. It was not intended as a compliment by the person who told you that it was, well, you know, we call her the princess of darkness. And I will tell you one other thing about that portion of the article in a minute, but you know, we call her the princess of darkness and it wasn't intended as a compliment, but Raider nation embraced it. I embraced it. It is quite frankly between us, you know, and everyone I tweet this to 7,000 times, the best nickname ever. And Damon Harrison and I go back and forth a little bit because I think snacks is in the top three. Also, <laughs> you know, great. he'll, he'll tell me snacks is better than princess of darkness. I'm going to go princess of darkness, but I love snacks also. Wait, they call you but no, no, it, there's a football player oh. named snacks. <laughs> Amy, Amy only has one snack and it's the best snack ever. <laughs> Yeah. Well, in that same portion of the article, I believe you wrote that um, someone in the league also told you off the record, we call her a smart, she's a smarter, meaner 
Al Davis. And I used to taunt him with that all yeah. the time. No, 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 even better. A smarter, meaner Al with a law degree. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. I ran and I showed him that. I'm like, smarter, meaner. And I mean, umpteen times between you writing that article and him passing away, I would say, don't forget what Mike wrote. Smarter. <laughs> meaner. And I mean, I was like, I was like the cat that ate the canary when I would tell him that the thing that the funniest story about when you wrote the article, I was, um, I was reading the article. I was with my husband and you wrote the story about what it was I did after the tuck rule ruling. And in that story, it said that, um, you know, I turned around to then director of officiating or supervisor Art McNally and I said, you better call 911 because if you overturn this effing call, only I didn't say effing, <laughs> I'm going to have an effing heart attack. Only I didn't say effing. <laughs> and I mean, I did. I yelled that you better over, you better call 911 because if you overturn this effing call, I'm going to have an effing heart attack. Well, I look at my husband. I'm like, I didn't say that. I did not say that. I'm calling Sports Illustrated. They need to retract that. I did not say that. And he just lets me go and I'm getting all hit up. And he's, he was with me at the game and he says, let me tell you what you did say. <laughs> what you did say was you better call 911 because if you overturn this effing call, I'm going to have an effing stroke. So really the person who really the person who told Mike that story only substituted heart attack for stroke. And I just kind of looked at him and said, Oh, okay. And I went on reading the article. That would, it would have been the greatest correction ever though. <laughs> Oh my God. We apologize. Yeah. Um, by the way, Natalie, the tuck rule was she was absolutely right in her interpretation, not just because she was a Raiders executive. Essentially, it changed football in so many ways because the Patriots had never won anything. And it was this yeah. great playoff game in the snow in Foxborough, Massachusetts, where Charles Woodson, who's about to become a first ballot Hall of Famer, came Yay. up. Yes, came off the blind side and um, met his old college teammate, Tom Brady, without as Brady was getting ready to, it was holding the ball, getting ready to try to throw a pass, pummeled him, the ball popped free, the Raiders recovered, and it would have ended the game. But there was this weird rule that existed and a very bizarre interpretation of it. I think the rule is now mercifully dead anyway, but um, that somehow... It, everybody in the stadium had no idea this could happen, including Tom Brady, because he's told me that, that they overturned it, mm -hmm. gave the Patriots the ball back. They somehow ended up winning the game, went on to 20 years of prosperity. John Gruden left the next year. We don't know for sure what would have happened if he had won the Super Bowl that year with the Raiders. It just changed. Wait, so that's the tuck rule, what they overturned? They, they citing the tuck rule, they overturned a strip sack that oh. should have been. And I will add, Natalie, two things. One, it's just, you know, there's the old, if a butterfly flapped its wings. But had that play happened even a few seconds earlier, the ball is ours. Because New England was out of timeouts and oh. couldn't have challenged it. But it happened just inside of two minutes so it was a league challenge. A few seconds earlier, ball's ours. But what set me off, among other things, was 
I kept saying, where is the indisputable visual evidence? If it takes you 20 minutes to review something and if people are still debating it decades later, by definition, it wasn't indisputable. Yeah. Dad, you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of Deshaun Jackson. What that was the first year, right? Yeah, that it, was yeah. There. Amy, well, I so in 2006, Cal's playing at Arizona, the first year that replay exists in the the pack. Oh yeah, yes. And uh, Deshaun Jackson, late in the game, they're down four, catches a swing pass and races down the sidelines and scores. Mm-hmm they go back and find that he barely stepped out at the 40, the first year of replay doesn't score. Cal loses. We end up, you know, not going to the Rose. Yeah. Tying SC for the conference title, but would have won it outright had it not been for that. So yes. Yeah. Um, I remember that play well. And you know what, Mike, I saw a tweet of yours about referencing if Cal goes to the Rose bowl during (laughs) your lifetime, I say that regularly, like, you know, just the law of averages should be that in our lifetime, we go once. Yeah, but the law of being a Cal Bear is that you'll be miserable for the rest of your life. So. But but the Cubs did win eventually. The Red true, Sox true. did it. The Browns just won a playoff game in Pittsburgh. Like I feel like it, when it happens, if it somehow does when I'm alive, it's going to be the greatest well, feeling. We were just talking to Mike Fleiss about this because I know that you two won't have a big party if. Oh, we will. Yeah. So I'm coming. Amy will You'll be, be there. there. Amy will be there. I'm we were going to call it when in 04, when we thought we were going, we were going to call it 50 years of misery, but I think we're going to have to be closer to like 70 years of misery, depending on. And kids today that follow Cal don't even know from what it was like when I was there. And, you know, one year, I think, I think our record was four and seven, but it was something of that nature. We're all chanting in the stadium, Rose Bowl, Rose Bowl. Cause, oh no, I think we might, yeah, I think we went four and seven. Well, we had been two and nine recently. So, you know, we're all <laughs> sarcastically chanting Rose Bowl when we actually won four games. Dude, that's why you had to start going to Raiders games. You're like, I need something else. Yes, yeah, seriously. There you go. But I could do both, you know, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. Um, so what's amazing is that, so, and, and I'll, you know, so I wrote this article called that the, the title in SI was White Tornado about Al, ultimately, that after I was banned, I still wrote the article and nice. obviously didn't get the Al Davis interview, which would have helped. But um, it, um, you know, over the years, there were different times where I got banned or just it didn't go well with me and the Raiders. And I didn't help. I mean, the first time I got banned, um, Jim Rome's radio show, national radio show called me that day or the day the news broke, maybe, or maybe, maybe it was the that day. was news Raiders band. Well, it was in, it was, it's a violation of NFL media policy. It was in, it was, they were still in El Segundo in LA. Uh, and so, oh, that's why they had to pay a fine. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, I guess Al had been fined. They, they fined them $10,000, which, you know, they signed the check. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, Amy signed a check. And then, I, of course, I was the jerk on Jim Rome saying, you know, hey, Al, let's cut out the middleman. Next time, just tell me I won't show up and give me 7,000. You know, I was just, I was an ass. So anyway, so I had all these, you know, not great interactions over the years. And then Al did speak to me for a long time, uh, for, you know, for Amy doing that story. And maybe there were a couple of amazing moments. I could still picture it. At one point he was making a point about you and I go, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. And he goes, Oh, you're not with me. And then then at one point it like, it had been a long time, maybe like 50 minutes. And I started asking another question and he said, 
Michael Silva, I think I've given you plenty of my time. And I just said, you're, you're right, Mr. Davis. Thank you so much. And then that was it. But so here's what's weird, Amy. As time went on, I felt like Al and I started to align, obviously, without ever talking about it. But we we seemed to be on the same side from what I was being told from other people and from what I was you know, coming to on my own on a lot of things. And then continuing after he passed, like I remember about two years after he was gone thinking like, now I see, I can't remember what it was, but like, now I see what Al was thinking on so-and-so and and I think I agree with him. So it's really, it's really weird. And and I'll confess to you and, and, you know, Amy and I both now are big, huge Jackson. Well, we know you are. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and I think we're right. And much of the rest of the world is wrong, but which we can get into, but um, Amy, when, when Al died that day, um, I talked to Hugh, I was now, I was waiting for one of your soccer games to start over, you know, on the field and Hugh called me and was very emotional. And I wrote a column and I was, I think I was at the 49ers the next day watching before their game started watching the end of the Raider game in Houston. And it came down to the last play. And I believe eerily you, you ended up only having 10 people on the field. Amy, if I yeah, um, I was actually standing on the sideline on our sideline at that point. As you're facing the field, I was to the left of our bench, and the action was going towards that end zone. And um, by the way, I didn't see our interception because you know, I, here's a here's a news flash, breaking news. I'm short, <laughs> and so I'm standing on the sideline, and there's players and people on the sideline in front of me, and so I saw the Texans throw the ball. And I saw it heading towards the end zone and I didn't know for a moment or so that we had intercepted the ball. And then all the players just ran off the bench, just ran on and they're all falling on our players and they're falling on. I mean, and we are all sobbing and I want you to know I'm covered with goosebumps right now telling you this. You are right. We only had 10 men on the field, although, as I like to say, we had 11. Um, But Tyvon Branch saw someone run off the field erroneously some he saw the guy run off the field and there was not time to do anything not time to call a timeout I don't even know if we had timeouts I who even remembers but what Tyvon told me after the game was when he saw that guy run off the field he just he moved from his position and he's like there is no way they're getting through me I mean Tyvon made an adjustment to account for the fact that the person wrongfully ran off the field so Tyvon saw that and adjusted Huffy caught the ball, intercepted the ball in the end zone, and we were all sobbing. You referenced Hugh. Hugh was sobbing on the sideline. I'm sobbing. Willie Brown is sobbing. Willie falls into my arms. We're all sobbing. And a few days later, we're sitting back at our facility in Alameda, and I'm eating lunch at the table with Tyvon, with Huffy, with a few other people. And um, someone references, we only had 10 men on the field. And I said, no, we had 11. And the, the player who said that very, very nicely goes, no, Ames, so-and-so ran off. And I just remember Tyvon looks at him and said, no, she's right. We had 11. Damn. Of course, referencing that there's no way Al was going to let us lose that game. I, I mean, I got to confess to you. Uh, and by the way, Al's specialty was always the secondary, the defensive backfield. So, of course, it was the second right. pick in the play. Um, I, I watching that game at the old – candlestick press box and wow 
crappy TV and I'm leaning over and watching it. We're all watching. It's right before the 49er game starts and that happens. And I had like tears coming down my face and I'm like, why the, I remember thinking, why the fuck am I moved to tears because the Raiders just won a game after Al died, you know, given my history with Al, but um, I don't know, man. It just, it was, it was really, really, it was really heavy. Can you guys, can you guys just explain to me like why and how Al Davis was such an iconic owner and what his role in the league was? Yeah. Amy's going to do it. Okay. Well, um, and I want to go back to something I said earlier where, by the way, I used a word that I don't even think is a word. How's that? Yay. Go bears. That's kind of a proud moment for me. I just (laughs) used a word. That's not a word, but Natalie, I was talking about your dad and I, I was, um, it was the beginning of our conversation and I was, tongue-tied and stumbling because, well, because I was tongue-tied and stumbling. And what I was trying to state was this. Um, Your dad has described it very, very well. Al banned him. Al, you know, was very, very, very angry with him at times as he was with others in the media from time to time. And what I was trying to explain, again, poorly, uh, was if he considered someone irrelevant, inconsequential, intellectually challenged, incapable, he wouldn't have cared. There were umpteen people he didn't like what they wrote. By the way, he didn't like what people wrote or reported far more often than he did. I, you know, I don't even think I can think of many times he did. But if the person wasn't someone he thought was considerable, he didn't care. And so it was my impression that the people he got the most angry at, um, the people he banned, the people that, that were just on the no list, were the people for whom he had respect in the sense I may disagree. You know, there's that great comment. I miss it. I may disagree with what you say. And in that case he did. Um, I always used to tease him because the saying is I may disagree or I may disapprove of what you have to say, but I will defend with my life. your right to say it. I always used to tease Al and his say, you know, I may disapprove of what you say. And if I do, I'm going to lock you out of the building, but it was, (laughs) he only locked out those um, that he thought intellectually, justified the lockout. Um, What made him so iconic, in my view, was he had the courage of his convictions. He stood up for what he believed in when others said it was wrong. He didn't bow to pressure within the league or otherwise. You may not have agreed with him. The public may not have agreed with him. The league owners may not have agreed with him. The league office may not have agreed with him. But if he believed in something, he stood up for what he believed in. And that's the man who decades and decades and decades ago refused to play games in the South because of segregation. You know, there was one instance in which the team, there were two instances, but I'm referencing one in particular in which the team was to play a game in the South. And he was having a conversation with someone and they said, okay, you know, we've got two hotels for you. And he said, I don't need two hotels. And they said, no, no, no. And they kind of hemmed and hawed and said, we have two hotels for the team. He said, you didn't hear me. I don't need two hotels. We don't have that many people. We always stay in one hotel. And the guy hemmed and hawed and hemmed and hawed again. And Al's getting frustrated as I understand the story as Al did. And, um, you know, said, I told you we don't need two hotels. And the person finally says, well, your black players can't stay in the same hotel. And Al said, oh, 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 I gotcha. And the guy was so relieved thinking Al understood. And Al said, yeah, I gotcha. We're not playing. 
click. <laughs> and he got the game moved. And I did a poor job sharing that story. And it was before I was with the team. And it was one I heard. And I discussed it with Al many, many times. And he never wanted credit for doing those things. His approach, and I just have so much respect for that, was nobody should get credit for doing the right thing. So, you know, I when he hired Tom Flores and me and Art Shell, I always believed he should get more recognition for that. And he'd say to me, hey, kid, I didn't do it for recognition. <laughs> I did it because it was the right thing. And that made it all the more special. Um, and also, in addition to this, he was one of the great football minds. Like he was a pioneer who understood football on a, on a more advanced level earlier than <laughs> you know, most of the people who've lived. So there's that. And then he, I know he did a lot that he didn't publicize behind the scenes in terms of generosity and loyalty for people who were close to him. So I, I know, I know he's multifaceted. So there are things yeah. you could certainly criticize him for, you know, in terms of what I thought were mean spirited or, or spiteful, but he also, I knew it was, it was always balanced out. Um, and there was just, you know, the Raiders, the culture was very like us against the world. You know. Is it not still that? Uh, it's not the same. I don't well, know. Well, you know, I, I would say, you know, I agree with you. It was a very, very different environment than existed at the other clubs. And by the way, the other clubs didn't like that. Um, there were instances at league meetings where there'd be a vote and it was clear, you know, it was 31 to 31 to one or when I started my career, there weren't 32 teams, but whatever it was, it was one vote against. Um, one of my proudest accomplishments, Mike, I got out a change from abstaining to voting no. And the funny story was about that. I finally convinced him, let's just vote no. I mean, what is this <laughs> abstaining thing? And so, you know, people used to all, you know, CEOs and owners of other teams used to make fun of me for the abstaining. And I finally convinced Al, let's just vote no when we want to vote no. And so we started voting no on all these things. And I said to one of the guys, bet you wish we were abstaining now. <laughs> <laughs> did, did he ever did he ever explain the abstention thing? Because I never understood that. Um, originally, originally, and this predated me, it came from some legal advice he was given that on one particular, that just don't even get your hands in this, you know, just abstain. Um, but to your point, Natalie, um, there was often pressure in league meetings. If a vote appeared that look, the league had the number of votes to pass whatever resolution it was. And the league would then circle back. If there were a few votes against it, let's say there were three or four or five votes against it the resolution would still pass. So the league would circle back and say to the people who voted against it, look, why don't, you know, do you want to change your vote so we can go out of the room and meet with the press and say it was unanimous and everybody else would and we weren't changing our vote. So um, a no was a no. And so to your point of, did he ever get pushback from that? Yes, he did. Okay, well, I am going to stop this here and push back against the notion that we can ever do a podcast in the amount of time we a lot for it and not go way over. Well, in fairness, we spent a lot of time talking about one of her major business partners, Al Davis. Yes, as we should. But she's got another one. <laughs> is, a little more recent. That is true. Who may or may not be one of the greatest lyricists of all time. His name is Ice Cube. And we talk a lot about him in part two. Um, and marijuana. But... Not related to yeah. separate subjects. Shockingly. But uh, yeah. And um, 
you know, and the origin story of Natalie and Amy, uh, which is related to marijuana. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> that's not as bad as it sounds. We'll, we'll explain it all. So um, this has been awesome. But we also think that if you had any enjoyment in listening to this episode, you are absolutely going to need to hear part two. Um, we'll post it probably probably a few weeks from now, yeah. but it'll we'll be, decide later. It'll be worth the wait.